0: So while we're singing without masks, we still don't have physical Bibles. So I believe that the words are going to be on the screen if you want to follow along or you can open up your phones um, as we open up God's Word tonight. The first reading is from Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision... By night, the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one. It looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth, and was told, "Arise, devour many bodies After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of the, had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in, my, in the vision by the night. A fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from the other beasts that preceded it. And it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when one of the horns appeared and when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them. To make room for it, three of the earlier horns were plucked up for, by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in the horn, and its mouth, speak, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and the ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white right as snow, and his hair was uh, uh, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed from its pres- his presence. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, The books and the books were opened. I watched then because the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body dev- uh, destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship. To all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and my, the visions of my head terrified me. As I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all of this, he sa- and so he said he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As, uh, of, as for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth, but the holy ones of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And concerning the ten horns that were on its head and concerning the other horn that came up and made room which three and made, to make room for it, th- which three of them fell out, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly, and that seemed greater than the others. As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the ancient one came, then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High, and the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. This is what he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth that shall be different from all the other kingdoms." It shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. This one shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High, and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law." and they shall be given into his power for a time, two times and half a time. Then the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the most high. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here the account ends, for as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly terrified and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter in my mind. The second reading comes from, not Daniel 5, which flashed on the screen terrifyingly, but from Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 14. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judah must flee to the mountains. The one on the rooftop must not go down or enter the house enter the house to take anything away. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray it may not be in the winter, for in those days there will be suffering, such as not been seen since the beginning of creation, that God created until now, no and never will be. And, as, and, and if the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, He is cut short these day, those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be alert, I have told you I have uh, I have already told you everything. But in those days after that suffering the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will be sent out then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven.
1: How do you avoid descending into despair? Uh, In many ways, we live in a remarkably uh, privileged and prosperous time where billions of people now live the way only kings and queens did just a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, Enough food is produced in the world to feed the population of the world. Uh, Life expectancy almost everywhere is double what it was only a hundred years ago. Infant mortality is much reduced. Seemingly, we now beat novel coronaviruses in less than a year, and so on and so on. Check out my favourite website, at least one of them, uh, Our World in Data, to fill in this picture. And yet, and yet you'd be a fool with your eyes clamped shut if you thought all was well. Did you know, uh, I only found this out recently, Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of children in Yemen are predicted to starve to death due to a seven-year civil war, not because there isn't enough food, but because there isn't enough peace. Sexual violence against women is a moral pandemic in our own society. At the global level, while we sing, still thousands die of coronavirus and That is not even close to the top killer in the world in terms of communicable diseases. And for many, even that is nothing compared to the feared consequences of a changing climate. And that's not even to speak of your own personal inner life, the the petty grievances that you nurse, the selfishnesses that you harbour, the thoughts that you dare not speak, the things that you really are very glad are hidden in darkness the ways in which you find it so difficult to consistently get out of your own head and to actually walk in someone else's shoes, and the way that every time you seem to have some victory, you find another vice springing up. And so I ask, how is it? How how do you not descend into despair? Uh, There are two main strategies, Uh, The first is to just stop caring, to just stop bothering, stop being interested. It makes some sense, after all. What actual difference can you make to Yemen or to to women? And and even if you do make a tiny difference, it will go when you go in just a few decades' time. And, And so this strategy is to turn in on yourself, to just marshal your resources and live as comfortable and fun a selfish little life as you can. All the while, your soul shrivels. That's not a way to live. And so the alternative is to rage, to rage against all that is wrong, to become increasingly educated against the, about the evils that others perpetrate and why the solutions that everyone else proposes won't cut it. And, and again, there's some sense to this. Who would actually want to stop caring? Who wants to be that person? But there are two terrible problems with with rage. The first is the almost inevitable self-righteousness that increasingly occupies your soul as you can't help but look down on those who don't get with your program. And the second is the dreadful truth that your rage is actually nothing compared to the evils against which you rage. And as that realisation dawns, it actually makes the descent into despair more likely and more precipitous and more devastating. So how do you go about avoiding descending into despair? The book of Daniel, from uh, one angle, uh, as we've been looking at it over the last uh, few weeks, is a manual for maintaining poise and engagement in a broken world... When everything around you screams that despair is the only realistic option. And Daniel offers hope as the counter to despair. In chapter 7, we turn a new corner. Uh, Previously, Daniel has interpreted the dreams of others. Now, Daniel himself has a dream. It's a dream where the laws of physics are completely out the window in the way that only dreams can really handle this and that even the makers of the Lord of the Rings would find a challenging uh, aspect to depict. Uh, In fact, Daniel's dream is a two-part thing. First, he dreams a vision, uh, a sequence of events that takes place, and then he dreams a conversation with an angel, probably Gabriel, who interprets the vision for him. It's like a dream with a dream, like Inception comes complete with its own interpretation, which is cool. And in verse 15, at the end of the first part of his dream, the vision, uh, Daniel is terrified. And in verse 28, at the end of the second part of the dream, the interpretation, did you see what it said? Daniel is greatly terrified. And if you don't feel something of that, then you probably haven't quite understood the dream or its interpretation. Now, it's worth saying, as we start... Uh, for those of you who might be familiar with the gospel narratives, it's hard not to come at this passage in particular with a perspective. Uh, This, Daniel chapter 7, is one of the all-time favourite parts of the Bible for Jesus. The idea of the son of man, one like a human being, literally, is just one like a son of man in other translations. Son of man was his absolute favourite way of speaking about himself. And that can kind of lead us to a little bit of a mistake, a mistake which might end up not being too bad, but which can rob us of much of the richness and the depth of this passage and other texts in the Old Testament. We can make the mistake of reading Daniel with all we know of Jesus in our minds. What I'm suggesting is that we need to read Daniel to Jesus forwards rather than read backwards from Jesus to Daniel. Because in the end, Daniel is not about Jesus directly. And the interpretation makes that clear, which we'll get to in a moment. But let's start with Daniel's dream. Uh, Daniel's dream begins badly. It's a fierce storm with great winds and a great sea. And it just goes downhill from there. Uh, The storm whips up not waves, but three terrible beasts, verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Of course it did. That's what dreams do. Then, as I watched, its wings were plucked off. That's painful. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth, and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. And after this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard, The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. Power, destruction, devouring dominion. Whatever these beasts are or represent, it's about these things. And then a real shocker emerges, one that makes the other look like a trio of pussycats, verse 7. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stomping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had ten horns. Uh, Things get a little hazy here with that morphing capacity of dreams uh, kicking in. The fourth beast has these ten horns, Uh, that's the symbol of strength, uh, the number 10, and the horns are the strength. Out of these 10 horns, another horn appears, and to make room for it, three of the other horns are plucked up by the roots. Clearly, this 11th horn is pretty potent. And Daniel comments, verse 8, there were eyes like human eyes in this horn, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. That is an ugly horn. But then suddenly the scene changes. Until now, we have met characters only dressed in black with deep, slow music playing in the background. The bad guys. Now the lights go on and the music picks up pace and the good guys make an appearance. Verse nine, as I watched, thrones were set in place and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire a stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him. That's a million. And 10,000 times, I don't even know what that is, stood attending him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This is the language of divine dignity, judgment given, white purity, fire everywhere as the symbol of the unapproachable holiness, the terrifying power of God millions upon millions, billions of angels attending him. And the books are opened. And then almost as quickly as the vision started, it's over. On the one hand, the fourth beast is put to death. Its body is utterly destroyed by fire. The other three beasts are spared, but all their authority and power is taken away from them. And on the other hand, a final character is introduced, one like a human being, literally one like a son of man. And what was taken away from the beasts is given, multiplied to this one. Verse 13, as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being. As I say, literally, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship. That all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting Dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. And that's the end of the vision. Terrifying and yet simple. Beasts of awful power, stripped of that power, and is given to a human figure as he comes to God. And it leaves Daniel in a cold sweat. And then, as I say, in a novel twist, still in the dream... He asks one of the myriad, millions upon millions of attendants to explain the whole thing to him, which, happily, he does. And so that opens the second half of the chapter from verse 17, uh, Gabriel's interpretation. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. And just in case you weren't clear how long forever lasted, it lasts forever and ever. In two short sentences, the vision is laid open, or at least we're told enough to get our bearings. Now we understand that the four beasts represent four kings, or or perhaps four kingdoms. Starting with Babylon, that would mean that the kingdoms referred to are Babylon, Media, Persia, and then finally the Greek empire. And there are enough clues in the descriptions of the beasts for, for that sequence to make sense. For example, in Daniel 4, you remember, Nebuchadnezzar comes to worship the most high God, symbolized in the way uh, that the first beast receives a human or, or a true or noble mind. Remember, Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar gets his mind back. And the unbelievable announcement is that these four kingdoms, the great superpowers of their time, the equivalent of Germany, Britain, China and the United States will all lose their power and instead it will be given to the international equivalent of Wagga Wagga. Now I have nothing against Wagga Wagga, although I've never been there and have no intention actually to go to Wagga Wagga. (laughs) But who could imagine Wagga Wagga running the world? What kind I mean, what a catastrophe that would be. Do you know, waga waga, the holy ones of the most high, that's what Daniel says. The people of God, the pathetic scattered remnant leftover two-bit, half-baked nobodies of Israel, now in exile in a strange land and the dream says they will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever forever and ever, the ultimate multi-billion-year Reich. Which is terrific if you're an Israelite, lousy if you're a pagan, say a Babylonian or a Hungarian. You think that Daniel feels pretty chipper as he hears this interpretation and jump out of bed and Go tell a few of his best Babylonian buddies exactly how it's all going to go. But he's after some more detail instead, especially about this fourth beast. And as he rehearses its activities in verses 19 to 22, we learn one crucial, additional, terribly troubling fact in verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones and was prevailing over them. Prior to the kingdom being given to the holy ones, they are oppressed and they look to be utterly destroyed. And it's only at that point that the ancient one comes and gives judgment for them. And finally, Gabriel amplifies his interpretation of the fourth beast. It is even more destructive than the first three, uh, it, it claims even the powers of God. It's really interesting. The same language that is used for God back in chapter 2 as the one who has authority to change times and seasons. That very authority that God has is applied to the, to the fourth beast. Is claimed by the fourth beast, this fourth kingdom. But even more importantly, this claim will not last forever. It will last for a time, two times, and half a time. In other words, rather than going forever, which would be a time and then double that two times and then double that four times, which if you add it up would make seven times and in in biblical symbolism, seven times is an eternity. No, no, this fourth beast will be a time two times and half a time, only three and a half. Cut short. We're not told how long a time lasts That's not the point. That's not how the symbolism works. The point is that this arrogant claimant to the rights of God himself will be destroyed. And then verse 27, the kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the most high. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Or what are we in 21st century Sydney to make of this dream, which contains, as I say, its own vision and then its own interpretation? We need to grab hold of two things. First, what Daniel 7 is about is the rescue of God's people from their enslaving oppressors. The, the interpretation uh, makes this absolutely clear. Four separate times, the angel says that the kingdom is given to the holy ones of the Most High and taken away from the kings of the earth. There is hope, is what this dream is saying. There is hope, not not just for individual faithfulness under pressure, as, as much of the first six chapters of Daniel have stressed. There is hope, even for an end to the pressure itself. Even for an end to the pressure itself. Hope that the kingdom of God will draw near that there will be an end to being bicultural, you see. And instead, the beautiful, blessed relief when the whole system is set up to serve God. And what that means is that just as the beasts are metaphorical and the old guy with woolly hair is metaphorical, right? You don't think God has woolly hair, do you? Let's be clear about this. God does not have woolly hair. It's a picture. So too, the figure of the Son of Man is metaphorical. It's a metaphor for the holy people of God who hold their faith and who suffer under persecution, but who will be exalted in the end. There is no more reason to think that Daniel had in mind a specific individual called the Son of Man than there would be to think that we should expect a lion with eagle's wings to haul itself out of the sea and then receive a human mind. Okay, and it's crucial to see how the the language, the, the metaphor, what's called apocalyptic writing works, which leads secondly to this startling conclusion, Daniel 7 is not quite directly about Jesus. And it's a mistake to say that it's directly about Jesus. It tells us itself what it is about. It is about the hope of a feeble enslaved nation, the people of God Israel, that God will rescue them and give them a future. So what does Jesus have to do with this prophecy then? And of course, the answer is a great deal, because as I mentioned earlier, he refers to it more than any other part of Scripture altogether. This was his favorite passage in the Bible. You know, if you have a favorite passage, you asked, It was Daniel 7 for Jesus. And it's very interesting. Almost alone in the Old Testament, this is almost at no other point is the phrase the kingdom of God used in the Old Testament. Really interesting, right? And guess what the heart and soul of what Jesus preached was? It was the kingdom of God, Daniel 7. And most radically, Jesus takes this metaphorical term, one like a son of man, and makes it his favorite way of referring to himself. In other words, here's what's going on I want to suggest. Jesus grabs hold of Daniel 7, and where it points to the glory to be given to God's people, Israel, Jesus drags that arrow and points it towards himself. He does that, as part of his astounding conviction that he is the true Israel. That he is the Son of God, just as Israel is described throughout the Old Testament as the Son of God. That he constitutes the 12 tribes of Israel in and through his disciples rather than through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God can raise up children from these stones to Abraham if he wants to. That's nothing being descended from Abraham, says Jesus. Here's what it is to be part of the true Israel. One of my disciples? Jesus is convinced that he is the true temple where God is met and worshipped and where sacrifice is offered and where sins are forgiven. Not the structure of stones in Jerusalem because as Jesus said, not one stone will be left on top of another of that structure, All that was true of Israel, Jesus says, is now true of him. And therefore, second, what Jesus is doing here is he is dramatically reinterpreting the prophecy, preserving its meaning, but bending its shape to fit himself. He plays the same tune as this prophecy, but it's in a different key. And so he is the son of man. Oh yes, he is the son of man. But as he plays this role, do you remember how Jesus speaks of it? This is a really great exercise to do over this week, actually, this Passion Week, is to read one of the Gospels and see how Jesus speaks of the son of man specifically. Do you remember, for example, Fox's... Have holes, but birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Mind you, he has authority on earth to forgive sins. Oh, yes, and he demonstrates that by healing the paralytic in astonishing fashion. What's more, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, says Jesus, standing over, not under the Torah of God. And yet, because of his grace to sinners, that he just loved hanging around people. Who didn't fit, they called him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors. The Son of Man, yes. But most remarkable of all, three times Jesus prophesied that the Son of Man will be betrayed and will be handed over and will suffer and he'll be killed. And on the third day he will rise. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you see how Jesus fulfills the prophecy, but he does so by means of a radical reinterpretation it's still the same tune remember back in verse 21 of daniel 7 that little horn it makes war on the holy ones and was prevailing over them there is genuine suffering ahead for the people of god the vision is saying but after that the ancient one comes and gives judgment for the holy ones and they gain possession of the kingdom and jesus plays that same tune but it's in a different key he doesn't say that triumph and glory come only after suffering He, in fact, lives out the reality that triumph and glory come through, come by means of the suffering of the cross. Well, what do we do with this to help us ward off the descent into despair? In one sense it's very, very important to say that the prophecy of Daniel has been fulfilled and is now in place. It's actually one of the ways you can summarise the Gospel is to say simply that Jesus is Lord. Jesus' last words in Matthew 28 are a virtual paraphrase of Daniel chapter 7. Remember when uh, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That sounds a lot like to him was given the dominion, don't you think? Just just a little bit. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Just a little bit of an echo of the peoples and tribes and tongues, don't you think? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you and remember that I'm with you always to the end of the age, forever, forever and ever. That is true now. Jesus has been raised from the dead and has been given the name which is above every name. That is the gospel. And can I say, Tonight, if you're, if you're not a Christian person, if you've not made that decisive step of putting your trust into Jesus, then you need to hear this. There is one like a son of man. There is this human being of Daniel 7, a Lord. And it makes all the sense in the world. It is absolutely the most rational, logical, spiritually sensible thing you can do to place your life in his hands. All authority belongs to him Including the authority to forgive your sins. And you will never know a cleansed conscience apart from that authority. You can't do it yourself. You know you can't do it yourself. It's pathetic when we try to forgive ourselves. What on earth would make us think that we have authority to forgive our own sins? But He does. And so, put your life in his hands and become a disciple of his. Receive what he offers. And for those who know that this is true now, that Jesus is the Lord, then the path of our lives, our lives is also clear. It's to obey this Lord because his kingdom has come and the day of disobedience is past. It just makes no sense. So, this is the now. And in another sense, it is also true to say that we live in the not yet. We are almost in exactly the same situation as Daniel. We are in a strange land. We are a long way from home. Our citizenship is in heaven, says the Apostle Paul, and it's from there that we long for a saviour and we're still waiting. We are still waiting and you can see the pain, the groanings of this world while we wait we live in the not yet and so in the meantime we do two things like Daniel and his friends we are to remain faithful we are to resist temptations to conform to this world we are to resist temptations to withdraw from this world we've got the risky option of being in but not of the world no matter what the cost is to us we see that, right Daniel But there's even more to it than that. There is the question of perspective. So here's the truth. There are 50 or more million displaced persons in the world, refugees who face death behind them and persecution in front of them, or pick whatever experience of dreadful suffering there is in the world. And the truth is, Each one of us should do our bit to deal with that. It is right to give money to the various charities that seek it. And and you should be giving a lot of your money away to help other people. You can correspond with and agitate for people in detention centres. You can become politically active and campaign and even run For office, my goodness, we need something better than the misery that we see so often in Canberra and Macquarie Street amongst our politicians every day, including today, yet someone else doing something absolutely disgusting and having to resign. It's pathetic. So run, yes, do. These are all righteous responses they enact the now. They avoid the dead ends of giving up and stopping caring or just of raging. And at the same time, there is something bigger than that, a bigger perspective, against the beasts of injustice and corruption, you know what? All you will ever be able to do is a tiny pinprick. We do them, but we know their limits, these acts of ours. And so we wait for the beasts to be killed, for their authority to be taken away from them for judgment to be given and that is the work of god that's why we pray your kingdom come take a different angle you face the struggle against sin in your life on a daily basis Um, You're you're hurt by a friend or family member. Will you choose reconciliation or will you choose resentment? You're you're lonely and unhappy. Will you choose a relationship that compromises your connection to Christ or not? You you constantly hear people making snide remarks about Christians. Do you choose to stay silent or do you find a wise way not to be ashamed to confess Christ crucified? The computer beckons late at night. After all, pornography seems to be such a victimless sin, right? Right? You just want to sit inside your own head and not care too much about others. It's just too hard to actually have empathy for other people. Well, you must resist all these temptations. You enact the now. But again, there is a bigger perspective The not yet against the beasts of lust and vengeance and selfishness, all we will ever be able to muster are tiny pinpricks. We resist them, and yet we know our limits. And so at one level, you find a way to be content in your weakness, even a contentment in your ongoing bitter and sometimes failing struggle with sin because you know according to the promise of God, that it will come to an end. The judgment will be made and the kingdom will finally be given to one like a son of man. Do you see how that changes everything? You reach the end of yourself and you don't descend into despair. You don't turn inward. You don't rage. You reach the end of yourself and Jesus is there. Notice in the story, the Son of Man doesn't fight or even contribute, actually. God simply hands to him the kingdom. Yes, we do our bit. We must. But we know that the kingdom of God will only come as God intervenes decisively and finally. Finally. So that to him, to him will be given dominion and glory and kingship. That all peoples and nations and languages will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift our hearts to you in praise and worship. For you are one like a son of man. you gave yourself up to suffering, rejection, even death on that cross, only to rise in glorious triumph on the third day. We praise you as the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And we pray that you would come again in glory. Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen us to live faithfully for you in this world. Bind us together as sisters and brothers of yours to strengthen and help each other as we seek to walk in your footsteps and to live in your grace. And keep us, Lord Jesus, from despair. Keep us in this hope that we have grasped. And we ask this for your glory. Amen.